Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed um, for coming along this afternoon to the first of our um, Royal Bank of Canada Bodleian uh, Lectures. My name is Richard Ovenden and I have the great pleasure um, and privilege of being the 25th person to hold the title Bodley's Librarian. And um, we are uh, expecting a few latecomers. Um, His Excellency the Canadian High Commissioner will... Um, as I mentioned earlier, stuck in traffic and he will be arriving, but has suggested that we, we just get going. So we shall. In 2006, the Bodleian launched a new initiative, the Centre for the Study of the Book, as an interdisciplinary research centre dedicated to bringing scholars and librarians together to undertake research into the Bodleian's rich collections. Eight years later, we have created an impressive lect- uh, record of lectures, conferences, symposia, workshops, and summer schools, which have covered territory from Greek paleography to Geoffrey Howe's resignation speech in the House of Commons. We're nothing if not Catholic in the Bodleian. (laughs) One element of the centre, which was always in our sights when we originally established it, was a visiting fellows programme. The Bodleian has no trouble in attracting visiting scholars to use the Bodleian's incredible collections of primary source materials But these individuals often come to our reading rooms, pore over our rare books and manuscripts, and leave little trace other than their footnotes and acknowledgements, which appear in print, sometimes many years later. We thought, however, that for one of the world's great research libraries, that we should be a little more strategic and proactive in how we engage with our visiting scholars, and perhaps that we might provide some of them with a supportive framework in which the best of them might come and use the Bodleian's collections and in return contribute back something to the research culture of the university. In 2007, we began this programme with a single visiting fellow working on the Marconi archive, which had just been given to us. And this programme has now grown to 14 per year, of which eight have been permanently endowed. The visiting scholars are chosen together by Oxford academics and relevant Bodleian Library uh, curators, and we have growing connections with, the exi- with our existing programme with colleges, academic departments and faculties. We have great pro- plans to extend the scheme, and of course next year the visiting fellows will be able to benefit from wonderful new facilities in the Western Library. It was with great pleasure and excitement, therefore, that a little over a year ago we announced the first of a two-year collaboration with the Royal Bank of Canada to provide Canadian scholars with the opportunity, and most importantly, the funding, to come to work on the Bodleian's connections and to become part of the Oxford research community for the duration of one academic term. We were delighted with the response in both the quantity and quality of the applications, and we had a a tough time in selecting the successful applicants. But we did, and here they are. And we're very pleased to have Dr. Aza McKercher this evening and Dr. Marie-Claude Felton tomorrow lunchtime deliver lectures as part of their fellowship. We are especially pleased to be joined by Mark Fell, Head of Global Ultra High Net Worth Services for Royal Bank of Canada, and by His Excellency, eventually, um, the High Commissioner for Canada, Mr. Gordon Campbell. Gentlemen, you are most welcome um, this evening. Oxford has a long uh, history of welcoming scholars from North America, 
but there have been perhaps a little too much emphasis on the engagement with that small country that exists south of the 49th parallel. So we are delighted to redress the balance in our collaboration with the, with the Royal Bank of Canada. Next year, we have two more RBC Bodleian Visiting Scholars researching topics as varied as missionary networks and Bible distribution in Canada and the Victorian grooming industry. I wonder if there will be a connection between the two. Come to the lectures next year to find out. It's now my pleasure to hand over to Professor Margaret McMillan, the Warden of St Anthony's, who will introduce our speaker. Thank you very much, um, Mr. Ovenden, and, and welcome to all our guests. Um, I wish I could say I were the 25th Warden of St. Anthony's, but um, that would be stretching it a bit. I'm only the fifth. It's a great pleasure to have you here, and a very great pleasure to be hosting this particular event, because as you may tell from my accent, I'm also Canadian, and so I take a particular pride in Canadians and, and their achievements. And Asa McCurker has certainly got a lot of achievements, um, almost too many, if I may say so, for someone so young. Um, a certain envy overcomes me when I look at what you've done already. Um, you only just completed your PhD in history at Trinity Hall in Cambridge. You've already written Camelot in Canada, Canadian-American Relations in the Kennedy Era, which is coming out next year, or the year after next, with Oxford University Press. You've also done a separate book, Confronting Castro. Um, alliteration seems to be something... You, you, you go in for, um, what are we doing next, um, confronting Canada, or, yes, Cold War Canada, anyway, um, uh, confronting Castro, ideology, domestic policies, and U.S. foreign policy towards Cuba between 1959 and 1965, and you have edited Mike's World, Lester Pearson and Canadian External Affairs, 1963 to 1968, which will also be coming out in 2015 with UBC Press. And somehow, in between writing your thesis, editing books, and writing um, two, two long, two book-length manuscripts, you've also managed to write articles on American, Canadian, and British foreign policy, which have appeared in Diplomatic History, of the Journal of Com Imperial and Commonwealth History, and the International History Review. Um, it's a very great pleasure to have you here in Oxford, and I'm glad that Queen's University, where you currently are as an SSHRC postdoctoral fellow, has been able to spare you for this visit. And I'm delighted that you're going to be talking to us this evening on your current project, which is uh, illustrated here, Pax, Pax Canadiana, Canada, the Commonwealth, and the End of Empire between 1965 and 1968. And this, of course, for Canadians, is a very important subject indeed, and I very much look forward, as we all do, to hearing what you have to say. So please welcome Dr. Kurt McCurker. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, uh, Will, for that wonderful introduction, and thanks to uh, St. Anthony's. Um, uh, it's a big pleasure to, 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 to be here. Uh, Richard and everyone at the Baldwin Library is fantastic. Michelle Stevenson, uh, Helen Langley, Alex Franklin, uh, Jennifer Varallo, and uh, Wilma uh, Minty, and also to folks at Royal Bank of Canada for the uh, financial support. Uh, Aaron Chamberlain and Mark Fell. Pardon me, sorry. The folks at Royal Bank of Canada have been fantastic in, uh, in their financial support. I, I regret to say that uh, since the age of three, I've had an account with Toronto Dominion. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking, of course, it's now switching uh, so that my banking fees can support future, uh, future uh, scholarships. 
Henry, speaking at, at a press conference uh, in Pittsburgh in 2009, uh, Canadian Prime Minister, current Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper remarked that Canada was the envy of the G8 group of nations, in part because of its stability and because, quote, it is big enough to make a difference but not big enough to threaten anybody, and that's a huge asset if it's used properly. He then went on to add that Canada has, quote, no history of colonialism, so we have all the things that people admire about the great powers, but none of the things that threaten or bother them. Predictably and deservedly, his reference to colonialism provoked howls of outrage from commentators who point to Canada's woeful treatment of Indigenous peoples. But to give credit of sorts to the Prime Minister, his, his views reflected a view of Canada that was certainly popular half a century ago. Take, for instance, this comment from 1966, pardon me, Nations in Asia and Africa are not afraid that any proposal or action of ours is designed to yield some strategic or tactical advantage. Unlike many Western nations, we have no past record of imperialism or colonialism. The author of this passage is Lloyd Axworthy, who in 1966 was a young left-wing activist, but who in 1996 became Canada's foreign minister, whereupon he pursued a very active policy of human security. Now, safe to say, Harper and Lloyd Axworthy agree on very little, at least on social policy especially, uh, except perhaps this view of Canada as a very friendly uh, country towards what we once called the third world, and a term I'll use hopefully today in, in not a pejorative sense. Uh, this is a view I explore in my wider project, which goes beyond the Commonwealth, in fact. Uh, so I, hopefully you'll allow me to speak briefly on this project in, in broad terms before focusing on the Commonwealth specifically. So the collapse of European imperialism after 1945 left in its wake dozens of new states and in a little over two decades the international order had been transformed as had institutions very dear to Canada such as the United Nations and the Commonwealth. The wave of decolonization overlapped with the height of the Cold War creating instability and in turn grave fears on the part of Canadians over the allegiances of these new nations. Now studies of the history of foreign, Canadian foreign policy focus almost overwhelmingly on Canada's relationship with the United States. This trend is understandable in Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau's famous saying, living next to the United States is in some ways like sleeping with an elephant, for Canadians are affected by every twitch and grunt. So when historians of Canada have considered the issue of decolonization, they've frequently done so with reference to Canada's own transformation from colony to nation. Seldom as much attention been given to how Canadians reacted to the wider phenomenon of the end of empire, an oversight that is now slowly but surely being rectified with serious scholarship, looking, beyond the, uh, looking at Canadian foreign relations beyond the traditional stopping point of the North Atlantic. My project contributes to this growing literature by focusing on Canadian views of and actions toward the emergent third world and looks at how the demise of the European imperial order affected Canada diplomatically, politically and culturally. Now, in terms of the collapse of imperialism after 1945, Canada was a bit player. As both Harper and Lloyd Axworthy correctly indicated, Canada lacked overseas colonies, and so decolonization in itself did not pose the sort of problem for Canadians that it did for the British or the French. Indeed, it was common half a century, century ago to point to Britain and France as a way of highlighting the fact that Canada had indeed been itself a colony. Speaking during a United Nations debate on the independence of Tunisia in 1952, Paul Martin Sr., the uh, father of uh, uh, Prime Minister a few years ago, then the Liberal Minister for Health and Welfare, acknowledged that Canadians, quote, knew the ir irresistible strength, because we have felt it ourselves, of the urge for freedom which develops in all national groups subject to external control. Eight years later, Progressive Conservative Prime Minister John Diefenbaker reminded the UN General Assembly that, quote, there are few that can speak with the authority of Canada on the subject of colonialism, for Canada was once a colony of both France and the United Kingdom. We were the first country which evolved over 100 years ago by constitutional processes, 
from colonial status to independence without severing the family connection. Now the latter part of his, his point was probably a swipe at the United States, which Diefenbaker was fond of doing. Uh, but in any event, some Canadians took this position much too far. Arnold Smith, a Canadian diplomat who went to Christ Church and who served as Canada, the first Secretary General of the Commonwealth, was fond of referring to, quote, a string of leaders of successful national liberation movements, starting with Canada's Sir John A. Macdonald and running up through Nehru and Nkrumah and Kenyatta. Now, Sir John A. Macdonald, uh, Canada's first Prime Minister, is famous for his saying, a British subject I was born, a British subject I will die, words that I'm sure Kwame Nkrumah never uttered. <laughs> Moreover, Macdonald was white, as were the majority of Canadians, whose experience of imperialism was very different from that of colonial subjects in Africa, Asia, the West Indies, and indeed Canada's own indigenous population. But guiding these sorts of af affirmations of Canada's own post-colonial status were two notions. First, the Canadians understood the concerns of Africans, Asians, and West Indians and could be trusted by newly independent peoples to work with them in a positive manner. And second, the process from colony to nation should proceed at a slow Canadian pace through constitutional evolution, not violent revolution. As Diefenbaker would have it, the orderly achievement of freedom and independence for all people in all lands will not be brought about through hasty and impractical measures adopted in response to emotional and immoderate demands. Underlying this view was a desire to avoid disorder, which was not only distasteful in itself, but which could be exploited by Soviet Russia, Communist China, and revolutionary Cuba. For Canadian foreign policymakers, the Cold War made working with nations of the emergent third world of great importance. On the whole, Canada's diplomats and their political masters saw national struggles against colonial authority as legitimate. As Lester Pearson, Canada's foreign minister, asked in 1956, if we hold colonial territories against the wishes of their inhabitants, are we going to be stronger or weaker in the long run? While avoiding direct criticism of Britain, France, or the Netherlands, not so much Portugal or Belgium, in public statements, Canadian officials expressed support for decolonization, while through quiet diplomacy, a favoured toolkit of Canadian diplomats, they urged their allies to avoid bloody military campaigns, whether in Indonesia, Algeria, Indochina, or Malaya. Independence struggles themselves, Canadian, Canadians contended, did not stem from the machinations of Moscow, Beijing, or Havana. Even so, the Cold War was of fundamental importance to influencing the, the direction of Ottawa's dealings with the Third World. Canadians were mindful that communist powers sought both to exploit the process of decolonization and to win influence with the newly, decolonized, newly decolonized world. Canadians then were not free from seeing events in the Third World through Cold War lenses. As a result of their colonial heritage and because they lacked colonies themselves, Canadian officials believed themselves well-placed to influence the Afro-Asian states, doing so not because Canada was an altruistic middle power, but because Canada was a Western country with a narrowly defined national interest in ensuring Western security. But this is not to say that Ottawa towed a narrow Western line. Frequently, Canada clashed with its allies as a result of a belief that it had a better sense of how to deal with the Third World. One area where these clashes took place and where Ottawa saw opportunities to make friends and influence people in the Third World was through the Commonwealth, which having now led you down a sort of garden path for several minutes is where I will dwell for the rest of my talk. The Commonwealth is one thread that we can trace to show the pattern of Canada's response to the end of empire. Examining the evolution of Canada's views and actions toward the Commonwealth, I'll hopefully show today, is useful for showing Canada's anxieties about decolonization's impact upon the post-war world and their efforts to promote a liberal global order, a Pax Canadiana. Now, in discussing post-war Canadian foreign policy, we inevitably, uh, inevitably start with Mackenzie King, who was, as you can see, Liberal Prime Minister throughout much of the early 19th, or 20th century. Pardon me. King left an indelible imprint on Canada's dealings with the world, 
for in addition to being a dog enthusiast, he was cautious in the extreme, the result of his sense that involvement abroad would lead to problems with unity at home. Throughout the interwar period, he had then been firmly against various efforts by London and the other uh, Commonwealth members at the time to centralize imperial foreign and defense policies. King had supported the development of the concept of the British Commonwealth of Nations as a group of equal independent entities, which in 1945 consisted of Britain and the, the so-called White Dominions. Now, despite his efforts to stress Canadian independence from Britain, war in 1939 had been for King, quote, a self-evident national duty. And during six years of warfare, Canada had given a major commitment of blood and treasure. Furthermore, Canada ended the war in a position of unprecedented power for the country. By late 1944, Brooke Claxton, Canada's soon-to-be defense minister, boasted of his country being, quote, the fourth industrial power, the fourth naval power, and the fourth air power in the free world. These facts are new, the result of the war, taken with Canada's membership in the British Commonwealth, her close association with her friendly American neighbor, and her geographical relationship to the Soviet Union. They, gave her they give her worldwide responsibilities, major interests, and definite opportunities. Claxton's enthusiasm, and he favored very close Commonwealth ties, were not shared by King, who felt that responsibility for post-war order rested with the great powers, a view that influenced Canada's position at the San Francisco Conference in 1945. During the debates on the creation of the United Nations, the Canadian delegation championed the place of the larger powers at the expense of the small and middle powers. With the war ending, Ottawa was seeking a peace dividend. For Clement Attlee, the British Prime Minister, the timing could not have been worse with his country and indeed the empire reeling from six years of total warfare, the British Prime Minister sought assistance from Canada. In the Canadian House of Commons in November 1945, he appealed to Canadians, you have a great part to play in the world. I am certain that in peace, as in war, you will take your full share in bearing the burdens of the world. In private, he sought to draw Canada into a Commonwealth defence network that would lessen Britain's overall burden in def defending the far-flung empire. As Englishmen, Mackenzie King noted in his diary, they seek to recover for Britain and the United Kingdom and the Empire the prestige which they are losing as a nation. Sympathy aside, propping up the Empire with Canadian soldiers was anathema to King. Even so, he was willing to assist British recovery in an informal manner, giving London a loan of 19, in 1946 of $1.25 billion, at a time when that was a lot of money, a sum that, while well, a third of what the United States was giving, uh, represented a tenth of Canadian gross domestic product. But as Arnold Heaney, the Secretary to the Canadian Cabinet, reiterated to British official, officials, quote, Imperial defence as such meant little or nothing to Canada. Canada was not interested in the arrangement for the defence of Burma and India, however necessary they might be to the United Kingdom and to the other members of the Commonwealth. At the same time, writing to Vincent Massey, Canada's High Commissioner in London, Norman Robertson, the Canadian Under Secretary of State, contended that, quote, Canadian responsibility for the defence of Canadian territory together with our responsibility for defending in collaboration with the United States, the approaches to the northern part of the continent, is, of course, a very important aspect for the defense of the British Commonwealth. The public, he added, had no interest in, quote, the acceptance of a share of responsibility for defense in areas as remote from Canada as the Persian Gulf and the Bay of Bengal. In the immediate post-war period, Canadians held a circumscribed view of their place in the world, one that ruled out imperial policing. Canada's global role then was framed in Atlantic terms. Speaking famously at the University of Toronto in 1947, Louis Saint Laurent, Canada's Secretary of State for External Affairs uh, from 1945 to 1948, and Prime Minister from 1948 to 1957, famously laid out the foundations of Canadian foreign policy in world affairs. 
With threatening clouds again darkening Europe's skies, he spoke in defense of individual freedom and the rule of law and declared that, quote, we have realized that a threat to the liberty of Western Europe, where our political ideas were nurtured, was a threat to our way of life. The statement outlining Canada's interest in European security seemed prescient a year later when Canada began talks to enter into what became the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and soon thereafter when Canada dispatched troops to Western Europe to defend it from Soviet imperialism. As for the Commonwealth, in his speech, St. Laurent had taken the usual line against a formal organization. He had also mentioned India, but briefly. Otherwise, he gave no acknowledgement of the rumbling of nationalist movements in the colonial hinterland. Canada's eyes were firmly fixed on events in the North Atlantic. But the end of the British Raj forced Canada to take greater notice of India, Pakistan, and Burma. Ottawa welcomed the admission of the first two countries into the Commonwealth and regretted that the latter did not join. On the issue of Commonwealth expansion, and here I'm quoting from Hector Mackenzie's brilliant work on the topic, Canada became Britain's principal ally among the old dominions in the elaboration implementation of a solution which not only redefined the constitutional basis of the Commonwealth, but also repositioned it politically. The two-pronged solution was, in 1948, to drop British from the title British Commonwealth of Nations, making the, 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 the word or name more palatable, and in 1949, to declare the king to be head of the Commonwealth, which avoided reference to the crown, thus allowing India, with its republican institute constitution, to remain a member. The sole dark spot on Canada's record in this matter was Ottawa's objection to any form of Commonwealth citizenship, a designation that would apply the free movement of peoples between different Commonwealth states. At this time, the Canadian preference was to exclude non-whites from the country. This white Canada immigration policy would hamper Canada's relations with various Commonwealth countries, until its full reversal in 1967. In any event, Ottawa took an immense interest in India's continued membership in the Commonwealth. Newly anointed as Canada's Prime Minister in 1949, uh, sorry, in 1949, Louis Saint Laurent told the cabinet that the issue was one of great concern to the whole world. The reason was clear. From a political and strategic point of view, particularly in view of the present international problem, this is of importance not only in terms of the Soviet menace, but as also as providing an important link between the peoples of Asia and the Western countries. It is worth pointing out that the wrangling over Indian accession to the Commonwealth occurred concurrently with the negotiations over the creation of NATO, with a growing Cold War overshadowing both developments. It is important at the present time, stated Lester Pearson, who was soon to become Canada's Secretary of State for External Affairs uh, in, 19, in 1948, to maintain some link, however tenuous, between India and the Commonwealth, in the hope that this may make it more likely that India will remain attached to the Western world or at least not drift into the Soviet camp. And Lester Pearson, of course, went to Oxford. Here he is playing for the Oxford ho ice hockey team. And in 1948, here he is on his uh, baseball card, um, which, if you read the back, he's number one of two, two, sorry, two of two famous Canadians, anyway. <laughs> I don't know who the other, the other one was. But the notion of a link between the old white Commonwealth and the new multicolored Commonwealth underlay Canada's interest in the organization, with the meetings of prime ministers every year or two providing invaluable opportunities for Canadian officials to meet their counterparts from abroad. Pearson, for instance, saw the Commonwealth as a vital and almost the only bridge between the free West and the free East. Parroting the sentiment in 1951, in a 1951 radio broadcast, St. Laurent called the Commonwealth a new bridge of understanding between the East and West. Yet he also spoke in dire terms. Now we can see that one of the aims of world communism is to stir up strife between Asia and the Western world and thereby to gain control of the forces of nationalism for its own purposes. Fear of communist involvement in Asia led Canada to participate in 1950 in its first overseas aid program, the Colombo Plan, organized loose loosely under Commonwealth auspices and aimed largely at Commonwealth countries in the region. Through an annual expenditure of $25 million, soon to rise to $35 million, Ottawa sought, in the words of the administrator of the Canadian program, 
quote, to give our Commonwealth partners in Southeast Asia, particularly a sense of really belonging to the free world. We must try to capture the minds of the youth uh, with ideas that are more dynamic than those of the totalitarian communism that they are imbibing today in their millions. Canadian policy in the area consisted of winning hearts and minds. Militarily, the head of Canada's army wrote in March 1953, we have no more interest in Southeast Asia than we would have it in a case of communist aggression in Iran or Pakistan. Again, Canada had no interest in propping up empire directly, but indirectly, Ottawa turned a blind eye to the fact that its NATO allies, receiving tens of millions of dollars worth of military equipment from Canada each year, diverted some of this material away from the defence of Western Europe to the defence of their overseas possessions. But the Canadian government played a careful game, resisting French efforts to involve NATO in North Africa and Indochina, just as it had resisted British entreaties over imperial defence in the immediate post-war years. The issue was not simply a desire to become bogged down in savage wars of peace, but to avoid damaging Canada's reputation with the growing third world. And the newly independent world was indeed growing, both in size and in importance. In terms of the latter, in October 1955, uh, Jules Leger, Canada's Undersecretary of State, responded to an entreaty from the Commonwealth Relations Office for Canadian assistance to the remaining colonies. Instead of promising such aid, he questioned, quote, the wisdom of ramming through independence at such a breakneck speed. For if, he continued, the newborn dominions were to fall apart despite all our efforts, the policy of quick freedom might boomerang by exposing them to premature communist infiltration. On a positive note, Leger affirmed that as soon as independence was granted, beyond, quote, almost automatically assenting to give Commonwealth membership, Canada would step in with checkbook in hand. The Commonwealth's importance as a link between uh, East and West was underscored earlier in 1955, when in April, leaders from 25 third world countries, including the new Commonwealth members, met at Bandung, Indonesia. The Bandung Conference marked the emergence of the Afro-Asian bloc of nations, a key indicator of rising Arab, Asian and African nationalism and influence. Canadian officials certainly saw the meeting, unlike their allies, in positive terms, quote, as a natural development arising out of the concern of the countries of the area to meet and discuss common problems and significant of the increasing importance of the Asian countries. 1955 also saw the expansion of UN membership with a deal brokered by Paul Martin, allowing 16 new nations to enter the organization. That's just the Commonwealth in 1945 and its changing size and complexion in 1955. These two developments, the expansion of the United Nations and the Bandung Conference, are important because they underscored first, third world solidarity and resentment of Western colonialism, and second, the fact that with the enlarged membership, the Western powers no longer held a clear majority in the General Assembly. These facts were brought into focus in October and November 1956. Canada had no direct interests in Egypt. The Suez Canal was, a f was far away from the Rideau Canal. Still, Egyptian strongman Gamal Abdel Nasser's was viewed with little sympathy in Ottawa, but Canadians well understood Nasser's importance and worried, as Pearson put it in early 1956, quote, Arab nationalism is clearly one of the key battlegrounds in the new competition which is emerging between the Soviet bloc and NATO. Motivated by this belief, in responding to Nasser's nationalization of the Suez Canal in July, Pearson and St. Laurent worried about the implications of any British or French use of force. In early August, the cabinet concluded that military action would mean, quote, the whole Arab world would rally in support of Egypt and the Commonwealth would be split, as would the United Nations. Pearson subsequently instructed Norman Robertson, now High Commissioner in London, to urge caution upon Her Majesty's government, for force would, quote, split the Commonwealth, weaken the Anglo-American alliance, and have general consequences which would benefit nobody but Moscow. Indeed, he had already voiced a concern to Robertson that any effort to use force, in fact, would in all likelihood result in an appeal to Egypt by the, uh, the the appeal by Egypt to the United Nations, that would be bringing the United Nations into the matter with a vengeance and by the wrong party. 
Anti-colonialism and the changing dynamic in the United Nations were clearly in mind in Ottawa, as were worried over the cohesion of the Commonwealth and the special relationship between Washington and London. Together, a veritable witch's brew. In the British capital, Robertson duly voiced Ottawa's position, telling Lord Hume, the Commonwealth Secretary, that Canada would not support military action. Prime Minister Anthony Eden was irate. So too was Harold Macmillan, Chancellor of the Exchequer, who complained that, quote, the Canadians are very wet. They say that if we use force, we shall disrupt the United Nations and the Commonwealth. Canada's advice was sound, of course. That autumn, Britain, having invaded the canal zone alongside the, Fren the French, faced the full brunt of world opinion at the United Nations, including loud and vociferous denunciations by the new Commonwealth members. Canberra and Wellington stood stoutly beside London, but not Ottawa nor Washington, which applied the economic thumbscrews to force a Brit British withdrawal. While not quite allowing Britain to save face, at the United Nations, the Canadians seized upon a floundering American resolution to send a peacekeeping force to the Canal Zone. Pearson pushed it through the General Assembly, earning himself the no 1957 Nobel Peace Prize. Avoiding public criticism of London, St. Laurent Pearson acted, they contended, to in Britain's best interests, as well as the best interests of Canada and the Commonwealth. Nevertheless, Howard Green, a, conservative, a Canadian Conservative Party stalwart, attacked the Liberals for having, quote, made this month of November 1956 the most disgraceful period for Canada in the history of this nation. It is high time Canada had a government which will not knife Canada's best friends in the back. Press opinion was more mixed. The Toronto Star charged that Green and the Tories have, quote, made it clear that their loyalty is to a part of the one part of the Commonwealth only, to the so-called Old Commonwealth. In the pinch, they showed scant concern for the vast and populous Asian section of the Commonwealth. Meanwhile, the appropriate named Victoria Daily Colonist suggested that whatever might may be the liaison between the Asian and Western members of the Commonwealth, it is vital that the relations of Canada and Britain remain fundamentally sound. The majority of Canadians apparently agreed with the latter sentiment, regretting that Canada had not stood four square with the old white Commonwealth. The fallout from Suez undoubtedly contributed to the election of a progressive Conservative government in the June 1957 Canadian federal election, which ended 22 years of Liberal rule. Writing years later, Saville Gardner, the British High Commissioner to London in 1956 to 1961, reflected that without Canada's strong stand, Suez might have proved divisive, splitting the Commonwealth on lines of colour, destroying the confidence in British leadership, and making a hollow mockery of the concept of a multiracial association. Back in 1956, several, several months after the debacle, he had observed, quote, a growing feeling since 1947 that the main value of the Commonwealth to Canada is the link it provides with countries of Asia, Asia pardon me, and particularly with India. Suez had so shocked Canadians then because they had, quote, hitherto taken the existence of the Commonwealth for granted and had been forced to act to protect it. Given the loss of British prestige during the crisis, he felt that Canada now had an opportunity to play a wider role in Commonwealth affairs, and henceforth Ottawa should treat London, uh, pardon me, London should treat Ottawa as a trusted fellow guardian of the best interests and traditions of the Commonwealth as a whole. Now, surprisingly, the victory of uh, John Diefenbaker, and there he is on his album cover, um, reading the speeches of Sir John A. Macdonald. Um, surprisingly, the victory of the traditionally more br pro-British Conservatives in 1957 led to little in the way of Anglo-Canadian harmony for the fate of the Commonwealth and greater Canadian attention to Commonwealth affairs proved to be a point of divergence. The new Prime Minister, John Diefenbaker, was a fiery populist who overcompensated for his German ancestry by wrapping himself in the Union flag. In terms of policy, he saw closer ties to Britain and to the Commonwealth as means of reducing Canadian reliance on the United States. After a month in office, he mused publicly about diverting 15% of Canada's exports from the United States to Britain. Casting a sceptical eye on this proposal, 
Savile Gardner blamed Diefenbaker's, quote, mercurial temperament and pointed out that the new Prime Minister was, quote, completely lacking in economic expertise. The suggestion ignored the fact of geography and proved to be a dud, but it was revealing of Diefenbaker's intentions. Under the Tories, there was a stronger emphasis on the Commonwealth as serving as something more concrete than a bridge between East and West. At Diefenbaker's behest, a Commonwealth Trade and Economic Conference was held in Montreal in September 1958. The aim was to consider freer Commonwealth trade by an extension of the existing Commonwealth preference system that had been established in 1932. But no agreement was to be found. There was some positive action by Canada, though, which increased its Colombo Plan aid to $50 million per year, agreed to a scheme of allotting uh, $10 million a year to West Indian development projects, and with the United Kingdom, launched the Commonwealth Scholarship Program. Disappointment over the lack of success on the trade front aside, Diefenbaker, flush with enthusiasm for the Commonwealth, embarked on a two-month world tour of Commonwealth countries in November and December 1958. The trip, he told listeners in Kuala Lumpur, was making him it clear to him that here in Asia, the Commonwealth has a vital appointment with destiny. He also pointed to the fact that Canada is the first of confederations, Malaya the latest, and that both countries have been able to unite people of different races and languages. This was not an offhand comparison. At this point, Britain was busy creating confederations in Malaya, as well as the West Indies and Central Africa. In part, Diefenbaker believed that Canada was an excellent model for constitutional development, hence his strong support for federal government, fellow federal governments. On a more practical level, he was concerned that, quote, the birth of many small nations would plug up the Commonwealth. Federations were a means of keeping the numbers down and keeping the organization more cohesive. Given his feelings on the importance of the Commonwealth and with little concern about the changing epidermal complexion of the organization, Diefenbaker, for instance, welcomed the admission of Ghana and Malaya in 1957 and Nigeria in 1960. However, the issue of microstates was different and came to a head over Cyprus due to gain independence in 1960. Canadian officials were opposed to London's initial suggestion of according Cyprus an associate member status and thereby creating a two-tier organization. Displaying some hesitancy, since the Cypriot population numbered a mere 500,000 and the admission of the island would set a precedent, Diefenbaker eventually agreed that associate status was impolitic because it would, quote, have the effect of watering down the Commonwealth. And for Diefenbaker, as much as liberals have formed, the Commonwealth was an important organization in an increasingly dangerous world. His world tour left him convinced. He complained to the American ambassador in Ottawa that the free world is not getting its message across to the people of the world, that time and again he had encountered those with no appreciation of what the United States or others in the free world are contributing. Better then to have Cyprus inside the Commonwealth as a full member, a step that took place with Canadian support at the March 1961 Commonwealth Prime Minister's Conference. Well, the Commonwealth gained Cyprus that March. Well, there's, sorry, pardon me, Diefenbaker and Harold Macmillan outside the Sheldonian. Uh, well, the Commonwealth gained Cyprus that March, it lost South Africa. The issue of whether or not South Africa's racialist policies were inconsistent with Commonwealth membership vexed Diefenbaker. At several tense cabinet meetings held prior to his visit to, to Britain in 1960, uh, Diefenbaker indicated that while strongly supporting individual rights and freedoms, he was dubious about the Commonwealth premiers serving as judge and jury over individual members' domestic affairs. He also had little desire to see the Commonwealth lose a member, particularly one that had fought in the two world wars. Yet the new members of the Commonwealth were threatening to leave should South Africa be readmitted, threats of which Diefenbaker was keenly aware. Furthermore, he was a strong supporter of civil liberties, having given Canada its Bill of Rights and removed racially discriminatory provisions from Canada's immigration laws, albeit imperfectly. He saw the Bill of Rights introduced in 1960 in global terms, telling the Commonwealth and Empire Law Conference in London that the statute, quote, exemplifies Canada's abhorrence of racist policies within its territorial boundaries 
and then, quote, the rule of law means equality of all with regard to race or color under law, without regard, pardon me, to law, or regard to race or color, can the Commonwealth stand for less? This vocal support for equality worried Harold Macmillan, who complained in late 1960, John Diefenbaker is going to be troublesome about South Africa. He is taking a holier-than-thou attitude, which may cause us infinite trouble. For if the whites take an anti-South Africa line, how can we expect the browns and blacks to be more tolerant? Ultimately, on apartheid, Diefenbaker had, took a troublesome stance, supporting the expulsion of South Africa from the Commonwealth. That organization, he had remarked to U.S. President John F. Kennedy in 1960, uh, pardon me, 1961, quote, would only prosper if its members pursued enlightened racial policies. Of importance, too, as he told Canada's House of Commons upon his return from the summit, was his sense that communism marches on the application of discrimination. His stand was not decisive, but it was important, for it put Canada on the side of the newly independent nations and against the United Kingdom and the other old white dominions. Departing from the Commonwealth Conference, Henrik Verwood, South Africa's Prime Minister, denounced what he called the Afro-Asian-Canadian bloc. For Diefenbaker, incurring South African indignation had been worth saving the Commonwealth, even though there were limits to Canada's own indignation, as Diefenbaker refused to cut economic ties with South Africa. Still, his stance had been of symbolic importance. Having saved the organization he believed in March 1961, Diefenbaker greeted with horror word from Macmillan next month that Britain would be seeking to join the European economic community. The Canadian Prime Minister used his April 1961 meeting with his British counterpart to underline his anxiety that as a condition of membership, Britain would be forced to cancel Commonwealth trade preferences. Canadian cabinet ministers relayed the same message to Duncan Sands, Commonwealth Secretary, during the latter's visit to the Canadian capital later that year. Donald Fleming, Canada's mustachioed finance minister, underlined that the Commonwealth was a fundamental factor in Canada's foreign and trade policy, one that Ottawa would defend to the death. End quote. Sands got the point, reporting back to London, that a major reason for Canadian anxiety was a sense that, quote, any loosening of Commonwealth ties would make it more difficult for Canada to prevent herself from being sucked into the economic orbit of the United States. This was certainly true, with Diefenbaker and the Tories having campaigned hard on a nationalist economic plank. That, including reducing, that included reducing Canadian economic ties to the behemoth to the south. Fearful on the score, the Canadian government was concerned too that Britain's plans, as Diefenbaker told radio and television listeners in Mar November 1961, marked nothing less than a turning point in history, one which threatened to rip asunder the greatest agency for peace and freedom the world had ever seen. Trade, it seemed to Diefenbaker, was one of the main elements holding together the Commonwealth Bridge. So, from mid-1961 to late-1962, Diefenbaker embarked on an effort, a one-man effort to ensure that Britain would not abandon trade preferences and thus not abandon the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth Finance Minister's meeting in Accra in September 1961 turned into a forum in which, taking their cues from Fleming and Diefenbaker, the Commonwealth delegation savaged Selwyn Lloyd, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, causing one British delegate to remark to reporters, they're out for blood. The situation was less improved a year later. In the midst of the September 1962 Commonwealth Prime Minister's meeting, Macmillan took to his diary to complain that in a false and vicious, vicious speech, Diefenbaker had launched a broadside attack against British plans to enter the common market that precipitated a torrent of criticism from the other Prime Ministers. To Macmillan, Diefenbaker was a very crooked man. He is so self-centered as to be a sort of, character of Mr. Glad's, caricature of Mr. Gladstone. He can persuade himself only that the test of any question is the political advantage to himself and to his party. For Diefenbaker, the issue went beyond party politics, and in the end, his obstruction did little to stop the British. It was, of course, General de Gaulle's non that did the trick. But the issue damaged Canada's relationship with Britain, as well as with the United States, which supported an enlarged common market. 
It was the relationship with the United States and his sorry handling of American-Canada-U.S. relations that proved fatal to his government, though the issue was the question of whether or not Canada committed to equip its forces with nuclear weapons. A cabinet revolt, a non-confidence motion, and some pressure from Washington led to an election in which the Liberals unseated the Tories. The new Prime Minister, Lester Pearson, had supported British entry into the common market, believing that Canada had an interest in promoting a great Atlantic trading community. Paul Martin, serving as Pearson's Secretary of State for External Affairs, assured the British that closer British relations with Europe would be good in principle and good for Britain. Both Pearson and his eventual successor, Pierre Trudeau, accepted the inevitability of Britain's association with Europe, and never again was there to be the sound and fury of the Diefenbaker years on this issue. Now, far more than Diefenbaker, Pearson understood shifts in global politics, believing that Britain's destiny lay with Europe. In this regard, he seemed at first to have little affection for the Commonwealth. Meeting with Dean Rusk, the U.S. Secretary of State, a month after he'd taken office, he remarked that, quote, the British Empire and Commonwealth, as it had previously existed, was in rapid dissolution by the emergence of colonial entities into independent states, and that the advent of African Commonwealth states doomed the Commonwealth system. It was clear to Pearson that the diffusion of global power amongst an increasingly larger number of states meant that a single country such as Canada would have less and less influence. Paul Martin shared his Prime Minister's concern, particularly with reference to the United Nations, where through a gentleman's agreement, New Zealand, Australia and Canada, and South Africa previously, had shared between them the so-called Commonwealth seat on the Security Council. Increased Commonwealth membership created increased competition for that seat, a worrying prospect for Martin and other Canadian diplomats. On a less practical level, Pearson undoubtedly felt some isolation as the representative of an old white Commonwealth member in a club where membership was decidedly different. At the 1964 Prime Minister's Conference, he joked that he, quote, liked being in inner circles, and there seemed to be one forming here of prison graduates. His record was more modest than some others. A week of being confined to barracks when he was a medical orderly attached to a British unit for a period in the First World War, but could he qualify? The anecdote was a favorite of Arnold Smith, as I've said before, Canadian diplomat who in 1965 gave up his career to become Secretary General of the Commonwealth, a position in which he excelled at creating a post-colonial Commonwealth, leaving the organization of 1975. Smith was approved almost unanimously at the 1965 Prime Minister's meeting, even though he had not been the first choice of most countries and indeed had not even been Canada's first choice. The secretariat that Smith headed for 10 years was the brainchild of Kwame Nkrumah, who saw the need for a central clearinghouse to serve the Commonwealth by preparing plans for aid and trade and thus deal with the pressing issue of the divide between the haves and have-nots. Ottawa welcomed the move. Pearson thought that the suggestion had obvious political attraction which would combat criticism that he had failed, uh, criticism at home, pardon me, that he had failed to give effective Commonwealth leadership, and when there is widespread weakening and dissolution of the Commonwealth in the face of the African problem. Moreover, he thought it imprudent for us to be in opposition to, the, to a proposal that emanates from some of the new and intensely nationalist Commonwealth countries, and indeed was receiving support from older Commonwealth countries as well. Agreeing with this assessment, the Canadian cabinet gave the Secretariat its blessing. In an increasingly divisive world, a strong Commonwealth was appealing. In recent years, Paul Martin admitted to Arthur Bottomley, the British Commonwealth Secretary, he personally had come to appreciate, this is in uh, 1965, he personally come to appreciate the great importance and value of the Commonwealth, and he was particularly anxious that the Commonwealth Secretariat should get off to a good start. The creation of the Secretariat marked the first instance of ins institutionalizing the Commonwealth, with Marlborough House-based staff devoted to coordinating meetings, facilitating cooperation, and advising on policy. It was a departure from Canada's long-established position to any centralization of the organization. 
Addressing these traditional Canadian concern over, quote, rule from Downing Street, Pearson told the House of Commons that he supported the Secretariat because it was a positive affirmation of the new member's interest in the Commonwealth. Canada has certainly travelled far since Mr Mackenzie King's time, British High Commissioner Harry Lintot had noted approvingly in mid-1964. On the Commonwealth, he saw Canada's position as constructive and quite devoid of self-interest. We shall not always see eye to eye on every detail, but the Canadians will sometimes be chary of lending us support on controversial issues, with the deliberative tension of keeping themselves free from a for a mediating role. But they admire Britain's part in the Commonwealth affairs and look at our problems sympathetically. Pearson and Martin looked with sympathy upon the British dilemma over southern Rhodesia and looked too to play a mediating role in what in the mid to late 1960s was the foremost issue facing the Commonwealth. Britain's aim of granting independence to the colony where the white Rhodesian minority maintained an apartheid state angered new Commonwealth members. Pearson saw the possibility that Rhodesia could divide the Commonwealth into an inner group and an outer group with the old members moving off as a kind of superior element in the Commonwealth Association as a grave prospect. The issue then, as he told the Trinidadian Prime Minister Eric Williams, was the biggest threat ever to the Commonwealth. It was more dangerous than either Suez or the Indo-Pakistan War of Kashmir. Like Diefenbaker with South Africa, Pearson therefore came out strongly against Rhodesia, urging its Premier Ian Smith to institute reforms uh, and, and uh, do away with, with the apartheid state. Canada's position hardened once the government in Salisbury proclaimed unilateral independence in 1965. This move prompted Ottawa to cut off trade with southern Rhodesia, to withdraw diplomatic representation, and to launch an airlift to free feed landlocked Zambia, which was denied access to the ocean by Salisbury. Canada's actions put it at the forefront of the old Commonwealth. Pearson, though, opposed calls by new Commonwealth members for the dispatch of military forces to quell what was in fact a rebellion by the Rhodesian government. In doing so, he cited the fact that as a colony, Rhodesia was a British responsibility. This was the same st stance taken by Harold Wilson, Britain's beleaguered Prime Minister, who put stock in sanctions. Battered by his critics on the issue at home and abroad, Wilson appreciated Pearson's, quote, sympathy and support. Although careful in its actions, Canada's positions on Rhodesia stemmed from concern over the stability of the Commonwealth, a position at variance from the stance adopted by both Australia and New Zealand. As Martin had warned, warned Rhodesian officials in 1964, for Canada, the Commonwealth dimension of the Rhodesian problem coloured all else. Colored, pardon me, coloured all else. For the future of the Commonwealth is a matter of increasing concern to Canada because of the implications for future relations between the West and the Afro-Asian nations if we fail to strengthen and develop the more and more tenuous bonds which now exist between its members. The Rhodesian issue had anything but a salutary effect on those tenuous bonds. After a divisive Prime Minister's meeting in 1966, there was a three-year hiatus in such summits alongside growing recrimination between the old and new Commonwealth, mirroring the growing global gulf between the first and third worlds. This growing hostility between the West and the rest due to issues such as Rhodesia, Vietnam, the Arab-Israeli relations, neo-colonialism, meant that the notion of the Commonwealth serving as a bridge became all the more important. Pierre Trudeau, who succeeded Pearson as Prime Minister in 1968, initially viewed the organization principally as a historical accident. He was soon converted, however, admitting that the Commonwealth was in some explicable way worthwhile. The Commonwealth certainly proved its worth as a forum in which Canadian officials could interact with their counterparts from abroad. The growth of the organization and its altered epidermal complexion after 1948 meant the Commonwealth meetings lacked the informality and frankness that had characterized the summits, uh, summits between the old white dominions. Indeed, meetings had become much more confrontational. This tension aside, for Canada, the growing communist threat the, pardon me, the growing Commonwealth pardon me, was seen in a positive light for successive Canadian governments supported expansion and equality of membership 
and at key moments had made policy choices with an eye to defending the continued existence of the Commonwealth, often doing so despite objections from London and the other old white dominions. The reason, of course, was that in a world divided along sharp ideological lines, it was best to keep open lines of communication. In a 1966 speech at a conference with his counterparts from Jamaica, Trinidad, Barbados, and Guyana, Lester Pearson had praised the Commonwealth for serving as the basis of the special and cherished relationship amongst its members. In my short life, he continued, I have seen the development from empire to old Commonwealth, from old Commonwealth, predominantly Anglo-Saxon white, to the new Commonwealth, predominantly Asian and African and non-Anglo-Saxon membership. Adaptability had saved the Commonwealth from irrelevance in a role of increasingly diffuse power. For Canadian policymakers at the end of empire then, the Commonwealth served as a means of reaching out to the new states, and one reason for doing so was that in the new world, uh, these increasingly, uh, pardon me, Canada's allies increasingly found themselves outnumbered. The unifying mystique in the Commonwealth Association, as Pearson put it, served as a useful basis for which Ottawa could promote a global order, what I call a Pax Canadiana. Thank you very much. <laughs>